Oh, now we're streaming. Okay. Setting up your meeting for a Facebook Live, and it always happens quicker, but there's something wonderful about doing it immediately, mm -hmm. and we will be on shortly. And I know that people are just delighted. Anita Diamond. I have seldom had such a response when I tell people <laughs> that I was talking to somebody and that is you. So <laughs> let's discuss the fact that people know you, Anita Diamond, for the Red Tent and the Boston Girl, but actually you are a prolific writer. And I thought today would be a great opportunity to introduce people to some of your other maybe slightly lesser known work. So let's talk about Day After Night. Yes, I've written five novels and uh, Boston, Girl, uh, Boston Girl was the most recent one a few years ago and Red Tent was the very first. Day After Night uh, is set in uh, Palestine in 1945, before the state was founded, uh, after World War II and set in an internment camp run by the British where they interned people who came to Palestine, Jews who came to Palestine after the war, who didn't have papers, who, who were illegal immigrants, in fact. And um, they uh, they then sent them to various places, but it was a terrifying place because it looked like a concentration camp in a lot of ways. It was surrounded by barbed wire. Um, so I found that place when I was visiting my daughter who was in Israel on a semester uh, program when she was in high school. And we visited the camp, which is a, which is like a living history museum now. And we heard this story about an, uh, an escape from the camp in 1945. So that became, I, and when I heard the story, I thought, novel! And I wanted to write it, write it before anyone else got to it. And um, I did. That was, that, was, uh, that was a hard one. Dealing with the Holocaust was hard. So if anybody is just joining us, I'm speaking to the New York Times bestselling author, Anita Diamond, and you may want to have a pen and paper at hand to write down some of the work that you may not have yet read. I am almost assured that everybody who's watching this, Anita, has read The Red Tent. I'm also sure that most people have read Boston Girl. Um, I cannot so wait to get day after night. <coughs> after our conversation this morning and now, I have already ordered it. And then let's talk about the last days of Dogtown. I'm going to cough. I'm sorry. Oh, excuse me. Uh, please take a moment. <laughs> and while you all take a moment, I'm just going to say what happened to Anita and I this morning. So Anita and I already had a wonderful opportunity and interview. And in fact, I interviewed her for the Revitalization Mikva project, which we're going to get to a little later. So I spoke to her in detail about that. And that interview will be available. So that's uh, an exciting project that she's part of. I'm giving her a moment. And then after that, I said to her, Anita, people want to hear about you and what's going on. So we spoke about Boston Girl, uh, the red tent, and then there's day after night. And now if you're okay, sorry. I, I think so. <clears throat> That's okay. Listen, this is the same as live television, right? Which means things happen. And uh, we were going to do our interview on StreamYard, which is my preference for these interviews. And then there was some technical difficulty getting to StreamYard. So we quickly reverted back to Zoom. And I have to say, I was impressed with how quickly you pivoted. I, after 23 years of live news, very little can really cause me to go, oh my goodness, because things just go wrong all the time. 
So it's so interesting. And I often say to my husband when he's panicking about something or he's getting upset, I say, you could never be in live news. <laughs> so I think, it, I think it rewired me, truly. I do think my DNA changed where, you know, if you lock the keys in the car or something terrible happens, I go, uh, you know, my, my level of um, ability to deal with stress that's called wisdom, actually. I don't know. Or well, it's just uh, jaded. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's what's important is what's important. I have no anxiety because you are a pro. So oh, like, that's you're very kind. I have to say, when I get to interview an author of your stature, there's always a moment of you are in people's lives when they read your work. And I think the Red Tent had such an impact on so many people's lives in terms of the way it was written and the story. For those people who may not, and I know there's very few, but there if are you many haven't people. yet read The Rent Ted, tell us what your inspiration for that was and a little bit about it, just enough that if you haven't yet read it, you are ordering it as we speak. Sure. <laughs> the Red Tent is um, a retelling of a very tiny episode in Genesis about the only daughter of Jacob and uh, one of his wives, Leah, the the main wife, the, the wife who gave him the most children. And um, she is mentioned very briefly in a very um, sort of shocking paragraph, Genesis 34, I think it is. And, uh, and we really don't know what happens to her in the story because she doesn't say anything. And there are a great many, well, there are not that many women actually mentioned in, in the Torah and in the, in the Hebrew Bible. And most of them don't say anything. And Dina says nothing. So we don't know what happened to her according to her lights. Uh, the story is not told from her point of view, but about her. So I decided to tell the story uh, from her point of view and gave her a voice and she, she narrates. It's a first person narration. So she tells you the story from her point of view. I made it up. Um, I made up uh, what I, uh, what the story I tell is based, sort of starts with the biblical story and then takes off from there. It is not a retelling. And that has gotten people who read the Bible more literally angry <laughs> hmm. so it's been controversial but of yes. course the red tent is mm -hmm. the place that women go to to menstruate yes and i sort of made that up too um however i know and i've actually learned even more recently that menstrual tents and huts have been uh, part of human history all over the world generally in pre-modern civilizations some of them were punitive and horrible and some of them were actually places of rest, relaxation, and renewal. So, so that brings us to your latest work. And I asked people <laughs> on all my social media platforms when I was interviewing, what would they most like to know? And the number one question was, what's next? Mm -hmm. So what next actually has to do with menstruation? It does. It does, surprisingly. It's a, a nonfiction book um, that talks about the current efforts for menstrual justice around the world, which is a, it's a global effort um, run in small projects, large projects, uh, big nonprofits, tiny nonprofits, trying to get products, menstrual products available to people who have trouble getting them, and also to destigmatize what is a natural, essential human um, function. So, and it's been a taboo, it's something we're not supposed to talk about, certainly not in mixed company, and that's starting to change. Um, it's, it's a very powerful change. It might seem like it's just about pads and tampons, but it's actually a big cultural shift about the fact that women are human beings and the functions of their bodies don't make them less than people who don't menstruate. 
do you happen to have the book cover or the book with you period full stop do you have um, I'm going to post it I will post yeah, it I, I don't actually the book is not in existence yet I have I have a copy of I don't know if you can see that can I share that yes oh that's the that's the cover okay I, all right I'll make sure that we do have a cover so just tell us the full title it's called period period end of sentence a new chapter in the fight for menstrual justice justice and of course those of us in North America or in the Western world don't fully necessarily understand that as you said there's often a taboo and although the red tent was uh, fiction there are places that people are put in almost places of they call it places of safety if women are menstruating but they actually, more, they're actually not they're the safe, they're safety for the community because there's a sense that menstruating women's menstruating women are a danger to people to uh, and that still exists them. today still it, it's it's rare but there are places in india in nepal um and perhaps elsewhere too where um where women are uh, shunted aside and sometimes at great danger and there are other places where women are just forbidden to go into the kitchen while they're menstruating and uh, so there, there are practices around the world where, and where menstruation is kind of dangerous because if a girl is known to be menstruating, she becomes marriageable, whether her parents want her to be married or not. Or whether so, she wants to be get yeah, married. Or whether not. she wants her or her parents even want her. So they, so they will protect her by, by not letting people know that she has um, uh -huh. this part of her life. So, and even in this country, I mean, you ask most women, you say, have you ever been caught without what you needed? at work or at a concert it's shame related and it's like what do you do you, mm -hmm. if you go to the, if you don't have anything with you 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 run to the bathroom and what do you do you maybe roll up some toilet paper and just imagine if mm -hmm. there was always available to you like there is toilet paper tampons or and or pads for free mm -hmm. which they should be and so that life would be a lot easier if in fact you didn't have to have that worry especially if you have some problem, if you have a heavy flow or you're not, you can't predict. This has happened to almost everybody and it shouldn't. And for women who are poor, for people who are homeless, um, for people who depend on food, food pantries, for example, for supplies, um, diapers, menstrual products, um, and toilet paper, the things that are requested the most and they are mm -hmm. given the least. So, and there are some nonprofits that work, and we take for granted that we have access right. to those things. So I know that book comes out in May. May. And uh, and I learned a lot in writing it. I did a lot of research um, online. Of course, this was COVID time, and uh, I learned a lot about wonderful wonderful things happening around the world. A lot fueled by very young women, girls, some of them as young as uh, 12 and 13, who learn about these injustices and get outraged and then not just get outraged, but set about doing things about it. Mm. I mean, it's such a fascinating, a broad range of work that you've provided <laughs> us with because there's a contemporary Jewish practice book that you've written. And I'm going to jump around a little because I wanted to introduce you to everybody again mm. who hadn't had a chance to hear you speak or hear about your work and remind you that there's a whole lot of Anita Diamond work out there that you may not yet have read. The one that I really liked was um, Living a Jewish Life, the new Jewish baby book, and then the one about weddings, which is the Jewish wedding now. So let's just focus on the Jewish wedding now for a moment because 
it's expanded to include LGBTQ weddings, right? Yeah, right. And uh, it also acknowledges the fact that um, people who are getting married in Jewish ceremonies are marrying into the Jewish community, whether they formally converted or not. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, and of course, not all clergy are going to officiate or be comfortable with that. But there's this whole world of Jewish adjacent uh, people who are living Jewish lives, actually. I'm sure if anybody here belongs to a liberal congregation, you know people in your congregation who are driving the carpools, who are paying the dues, who are volunteering, who are not technically Jewish, but who live a Jewish life and support Jewish family living. And some of those folks do get married in Jewish ceremony. So it acknowledges the whole breadth of the Jewish community, which includes Jews of all genders and Jews of all races as well. We are not an all white community. We have people of every shade who are Jewish as well. And they are even more invisible these days, I think, than LBGTQ uh, folks. And then there was something else that I learned this morning is I said, what inspired you to be so inclusive, particularly about people who had converted to Judaism and you shared that your husband had converted, you yes. raised a Jewish family and it gave you extra sensitivity towards the inclusion. And we spoke about the fact that historically Jewish conversions hadn't been encouraged. And uh, I'd love your thoughts on that. Yes, well, yeah, there's this, um, there's this story and it, it, it comes from one particular German rabbi saying you should, when someone comes to approaches a rabbi in particular to study and with the idea of converting, you're supposed to push them away three times to make mm. sure they're serious about it. And so, so there's this notion of discouragement, but a lot of that had to do with fear because it was illegal for Jews to convert or accept converts. And sometimes at, at great peril, at um, mortal peril, if, if you were discovered to have accepted somebody who converted. And the person who converted was also in peril of, of being executed for that choice. So that's our history. That's, um, it's a very old, deep history. I don't think it's well known, but that is part of where the reticence comes from. Also, there's a kind of chauvinism that, you know, if you're not born Jewish, you can't be Jewish which is actually kind of racist, um, but that people have always joined the Jewish community. And we don't know that. That's a, that's a really wonderful history of the people who have joined our community. Um, and that's changed because we no longer live in the kind of fear, the Jewish community, certainly in the United States, while anti-Semitism is certainly present, we do not fear for uh, our community because somebody converts, somebody joins, somebody who converts to Judaism is not going to be uh, for the most part, uh, rejected by their by their workmates, by their family even. So it's changed radically and for the better, I think. Um, an open door, uh, we, look, the Jewish community would not exist had people not joined us over the centuries. We would have dwindled and we haven't dwindled. I mean, we've been, we've, we've survived a lot, but we have persisted. And part of that I think is because we do accept converts to Judaism. And it's been very interesting, and I don't want to give too much away about the revitalized mikveh. Mm -hmm. So for people who are joining us, I'm talking to Anita Diamond. She is the author of The Red, Boston Girl, many, many other beautiful works of fiction and nonfiction. And Anita, you're part of a mikveh movement, which for those people who have never even heard of what a mikveh is, tell us about that. A mikveh is um, a ritual bath. Um, there is a, look, we all know how 
revitalizing water is. For many of us, if we're exhausted or weary or just want a vacation, we go to bodies of water. We go to the ocean, we go to a lake, we go to a river, and there's something elementally reviving and refreshing about water. And it's also in all religions used as a form of transition. Um, uh, for Christians, it's baptism. And baptism actually dates from the uh, mikvah, from immersion in water as a, as a place for transition of change from mar unmarried to married, for example, it's been traditionally, uh, and grooms optional, but brides required according to Jewish law to immerse, to mark the beginning of their married life, their sexual life. Um, and, uh, and mikveh has also been used, mandated for conversion from making this transition from not Jewish to Jewish. It's not just like a one, two, three thing that follows a lot of study and a lot of thought um, and of, uh, of reflection, with, usually with clergy. And this is sort of the last ritual step. So that's been part of Jewish life in, in those particular ways for thousands of years and women using the mikveh um, after their menstrual cycle in order to reunite physically with their husbands. So those are the two mandated ones. And throughout history, people have used it for other reasons as well. And in our time and in our place here and now, people are encouraged in the open, open mikveh movement to find their own reasons for immersing and here in Boston, we opened Mayim Chaim 16 years ago, and people have found remarkable reasons, remarkable moments in their lives that they need to stop, reflect upon, sanctify, and physically embody the change that they are making or is about to happen to them. That's so interesting. I'm looking at my Facebook just to see if there are any questions. And I'm getting a few. Um, somebody really wants to know about the character of Dina in the red tent. So I know we're jumping around and then right. a question about the Boston girls. So thanks for bearing with me on this. Okay. What do you, I, the Dina character uh, is just uh, she she starts as a young girl. We meet her as a young girl reflecting reflecting on her, her family life with these four mothers. Um, she's born to Leah, but Rachel, Zilpa, and Bilha are also part of her extended female motherhood in a way. And it's the story for coming of age and growing up and the things that happened to her in her life. The character in the book is really defined by her story, by her family, by what happens to her, by her, her love stories. She has two of them in the book and what happens to the men she loves. And, and what, the, what the fallout from those relationships as well. She grows wise over the course of the book. Uh, it's from her childhood till her death. And we see the world through her eyes and we feel her pain. And, um, and we also um, enjoy the moments of her life that give her joy. So- And then a question here about inspiration for the Boston girl. Inspiration for the Boston Girl. Um, so the Boston Girl tells the story of a woman who's born to immigrant parents in Boston in 1900. So we, we meet her when she's 15 years old. The inspiration came actually from a, a location, a real location in the book, which is called Rockport Lodge, which is a kind of vacation home for young women who, without means, that was subsidized by means of the 20th century. And uh, my husband and I have a little house in Rockport around the corner from this real place. And uh, several years ago, I found out that it was a resort for women only. 
and that just piqued my curiosity. So I thought I'm going to write a novel about the about Rockport Lodge, but then I sort of slid into the into the 1920s when really the book takes off, and uh, I, I wrote and wrote and wrote. So there was no way I was going to write a hundred year history. So it focuses on Addie Bloom, um, Addie, Addie, I'm sorry, Addie Baum, and her story of coming of age, of coming of age at a time when women were starting to find their way in a larger world um, about her fam difficult family, immigrant family. Um, and one of the neat things about, about that book is the response I've gotten. I've gotten emails and let, mostly emails from people of all different backgrounds, Jews and Italians and Irish folks and uh, women from the Midwest whose family came from Norway, who mm -hmm. identified with the struggle of immigrant families, especially around girls in immigrant families and their expectations. So it always delights me when I tell a very specific story and yet people from very different backgrounds with very different points of view identify with it. They understand the same story somehow in themselves. That's one of the great compliments, I think, of uh, writing these kinds of books. So people are always fascinated by the writer's process. I was watching a Bee Gees documentary the other day, by the way, superb on Amazon Prime or HBO, one of them. And he was saying, you know, you don't write a song. It comes to you, you gather the song. Is that how you feel about writing? No, writing is really hard. Writing is really hard work. Um, it, uh, I, you know, people, I, when I'm asked if I channel Dina, I sort of, say no. <laughs> that was three years of really hard work while I was doing uh, other stuff to make a living. So no, it's, um, it's hard. And it, my, my writing friends, and that's certainly not <laughs> that many, we all struggle and we all uh, want to give up more than we want to proceed. Mm. It's, uh, you know, some days are good and some most days aren't so good. And that's interesting coming from you. I mean, you've written five works of fiction, numerous nonfiction. You've been on the New York Times bestseller list several times and you still feel that way. Yes, I do. Um, I, I have to say, I learned to be a writer as a journalist with deadlines. And you know, if you, and as you well know, if you don't meet your deadlines, you don't get another assignment. Um, so, so I see, and that's serious work and you have to produce things on deadline quickly often. Um, I was not so much a daily journalist, but weekly magazines and, and monthly magazines as well, long form stories. But that gave me a kind of discipline to, to write, but it never it's never easy and it's always anxiety producing, always. I'm gonna jump around, as I said, tell us about The Good Harbor. It was a 2001 book, again, one of my favorites, but uh, oh. if you haven't yet read, write it down, The Good Harbor and Day After Night, yes. Uh, Good Harbor was the second novel I wrote and it is as different from The Red Tent as it can be. And I wanted it to be different. I didn't wanna write a sequel. And it's set in contemporary times at the time in the 1980s. And it tells the story of two women who meet um, actually at a synagogue randomly and uh, they become friends and they it, it's a time in their lives they both really need a friend and they're both going through different things one of the women is uh, has been diagnosed with breast cancer the other is struggling with her her career and her marriage and her adolescent daughter who's driving her crazy and they they find each other even though their age differences lots of differences and their friendship is very redemptive and it helps them deal with 
long-standing pain and new challenges. And so it's, it's a real celebration of women's friendships, which is kind of at the heart of all of my novels and a lot of my nonfiction too. The Last Days of Dogtown. Yeah, that's also in uh, Good Harbor, Last Days of Dogtown and Boston Girl all spend time on the North Shore of uh, Massachusetts, uh, north of Boston, Cape Ann. And this is a story inspired by a pamphlet, uh, a historical pamphlet about Dogtown, which was the original settlement of Cape Ann um, up in the middle of the Cape. And it, it was ultimately abandoned because it was, it was unfarmable. And the people who were left there at the end were women who were accused of being witches or prostitutes, um, crotchety impossible old men and women who didn't fit into society one way or another, and including a couple of freed slaves. And so, uh, so their, their lives together, the way they survive uh, individually, but mostly as a, a kind of patchwork community who look out for each other, even in impossible situations, and what happens to them. It, it's the last days because it's the last people who lived full time in that, in that community. And that's, um, that's the only book, only in one of my novels that has no Jewish content. Hmm. The others are not, well, they're not necessarily focused. And actually the Red Tent, I don't see as a Jewish novel either. It's not, it's sort of pre, pre-Sinai, pre the law. It's a story. It's one of our stories, one of our sacred stories, but um, it's before people identified as Jews. Anyway, so there are no Jews in the, on Cape Ann in the 1980s. A question from somebody who's going to ask is, is there going to be another biblical novel? No. <laughs> and why no sequel to The Red Tent? Well, you would, uh, it would be disappointing. Uh, I think one of the reasons The Red Tent found s such an enthusiastic audience was that it opened a door into, uh, into biblical texts for Christians and Jews. Um, and I've heard from some Muslim women as well that they hadn't realized that they needed those stories. They needed to hear women's voices and how absent they were. Um, and I actually tried writing. I have tried over the years, come up with different women to write about. And I, it's just too much repetition. My all five novels have are completely different time periods, um, different kinds of stories, different lengths. And that's part of the challenge that I like is to start all over again. And I, it felt like I was doing the same thing over and I couldn't, and I couldn't make it the same. And I knew people would be disappointed by the second. It's, we're always disappointed by sequels, oh, unless, you know, except for JK like, Rowling, perhaps. You know? Well, when it looks at you, you realize, and I think people identify with you because they assume that it's all so there. And in fact, there's the same struggle. That's what's yeah. quite remarkable in talking to you question um in terms of okay you've said what's next for you and um what are you reading at the moment anything you can recommend that we should read well I have to confess that when I'm writing books I don't read books um I um I read the New Yorker and the newspaper uh at once and I read poetry I find that it sort of cleanses someone just sent me an uh uh work of nonfiction that I'm interested in. I don't know how many other people would be. It's called The Equivalence. And it's the story of uh, the Bunting Fellowship at Radcliffe, which brought women together, um, sort of mid-career women who, just to give them the opportunity, the time and the place, a room of their own. And that first class included the poets, 
uh, Anne Sexton and uh, Mac, uh, Maxine Cuman. The next year was Tilly Olson, uh, Barbara Swan, a painter. Just really interesting women and their stories about blossoming and being given this opportunity. And I don't know why this one has caught my, my heart so much, but um, I'll tell you one novel I did read in the last couple of years that I tell everyone to read, which is called This is Happiness um, mm. by Niall um, William. We'll find it. So this it's, is happiness. He's Irish. It's Irish. He's an Irishman and it tells the story of the electrification of a little tiny town in uh, Ireland. So it's the 1920s, 30s. And it's about uh, how life changes and it's just magical and I the last time I read it I, I kept I, I would have underlined every sentence it's beautiful this is happiness okay this is happiness and then another question is have any of your movies has anybody wanted to turn them into a television series or a, a, a movie I mean the, well, the Red Tent was, was the Red Tent was made into a lifetime two-part miniseries right several years ago um and I, I, I had nothing, feel about nothing to do with it. <laughs> um, generally, writers don't have a whole lot but to do. But they at least, I mean, they bought the rights. They mean. bought the rights. And, and, and how did you feel about that? Uh, it was very different from the book uh, in a lot of ways. And I knew that it would be. I, uh, my mother, uh, whose memory is a, is a blessing, said when she saw it, she said their teeth were too white. So, trust our mothers, right? Yes. Well, it was just encapsulated how clean everybody was. And I tried when I wrote it to make it clear that it was dirty and that they were living in a tent and that the floor was made out of uh, out of dirt. So um, so yeah, it was very different. It was it was a Hollywoodized version. And what about and, and at the same? But I want to say at the same time, it, it introduced a lot of people to the book. Um, it gets uh, broadcast occasionally in Spanish in South America and also in Great Britain. And when it when it does show there, I get email from people, and, oh. uh, which is lovely. So and it introduces people to the book. So it's all good. It's all good. So, I just, you know, at a time where I mean, I keep hearing from friends, you know, given the amount of access we have to Netflix and HBO and people aren't reading as much, which is such a great pity, right? Well, yeah, so people are reading. I know people are reading, but there's something about witnessing a story, listening to a story, which is so elemental. We learned stories at our mother in our parents' laps as children, um, not by reading them so much, but by hearing them and have them acted out. I'm a huge theater goer, big mm -hmm. fan of live theater, which I miss. But I watch as much as I, you know, filmed stuff on. Um, on, on, on the screen. And that's so important for people who are watching who are raising younger children, just the reminder of storytelling as part of cognitive development. Right, and actually, if you sit with your children and watch something together mm -hmm. and then talk about it afterwards, that is one of the pleasures of reading as well, is to share the experience, to, to talk about the story and what did it mean to you and what, what do you think of it? And, and so I think it's sad when people are in different rooms watching different screens as opposed mm -hmm. to sharing the experience of, of a story. Um, so the one television household, now everyone's got a television in their bedroom. Uh, just, oh, also a screen. Just, I mean, you can, watch, you can watch on your computer, you can watch on your laptop, you can watch on your phone. People do, kids do a lot, watch, uh, watch stuff on their phones. Of course, we used to do that while we were traveling, but we don't, we don't travel. But I know you have a daughter. I do. Um, what, what was her reaction when she first read Red Tent? She was 13. Uh, she was a little mortified. There's a fair amount of sex in there. <laughs> but she was also very proud. It's dedicated to her. And... Uh, um, 
and you know people and and it's this mixed blessing um she's she's uh she's an activist in many spheres including the jewish world and you know when people make the connection it's both and it's both like yeah it's my mother and sometimes it comes in handy <laughs> that's interesting she's proud of you i mean i'm sure i'm proud of her as well right so you know here we are and it's 2021 you know you have been very inspirational in what you've shared and managed to achieve um one other question is message to us in 2021 what advice and, advice and guidance does anita diamond have that's one and then the second question was if you're a young writer what advice and guidance do you have so let's start off with a young writer yeah right read read and read outside of your own world um read read in translation, read books from places and stories and magazines, even um, from countries and cultures that are different from your own. It mm -hmm. just, it, and it enriches you also from the past, uh, which is a challenge. Uh, even reading great English writers of the past is a challenge for us today because their sense of time uh, and their use of language is so different, but all of that. Um, mm -hmm. And reading from, you know, different cultures within our, in our own world, I, you know, the, um, oh, I'm sorry, uh, bra straps. Um, uh, the, um, the inclusion of diverse voices in our canon mm. now is exciting because they're stories we don't know. They're stories that we should know and they're stories that are human being stories so we can all identify with, good ones we all mm. identify with. So the world is, is awash <laughs> in stories. There's more, it's called content now, but it's, uh, it's stories. And the more you absorb, the better. And I, and I, and I think that includes film and I think that includes theater and dance and music all of those things can enrich a writer's capacity and I hope today like, as a parent as a whoever's watching just you know that re-inspiration to read the power of, of yeah, doing power so. of it's also exactly. you know people and when when you read you have the world the world is yours it belongs mm. to you individually as well you, everything is available to you especially now interesting adaptation on Netflix of Bridgerton, which were these, you know, novels. <laughs> Have you seen it at all? I've seen some of it, yeah. It's so silly. Oh my gosh, it's so silly. It is, but well, it's, it's like, well done, silly. It's so very well done. It's very like, well the done. The dialogue is excellent. Shonda Rhimes, yes. the cadence She's of great. the costume, the, the costuming, just the visual. I had a friend who watched it and said she just watched it to see the flowers. But it's so interesting <laughs> that they can take, I mean, just what captures people's imagination and yes. I have kept saying, Anita, reggae, Jean, Paige. Oh, Lord. The most beautiful human being on the planet, no. ever. You know, when I first saw it, I said, reggae, Jean, Paige. And it's interesting because he was actually born in Zimbabwe, raised in the UK. Uh, but yeah. occasionally a star is, just comes, and he's not so young, and he's been doing many things, but this role. Right, right. right. Uh, no, it's reggae. fun, and it's also fun. Um, the, the young woman who's playing Eleanor, I think it is. Evie uh, Dynable. Yeah, she's she's just she, every time she's on the screen, I pay attention. I feel like we're going to see a lot of her. It's that, that's kind of fun. Exactly, watching that, but watching again adaptation, and then finally, I mean, here we are. Um, we're speaking today, being Tuesday the nineteenth. Tomorrow is Wednesday the twentieth. Your thoughts? <laughs> thoughts. Um, do you know Randy Rainbow's work? Randy Rainbow sounds oh. very familiar. Well, he's uh, he's a humorist, and he posts sort of song parodies on uh, YouTube. Okay, we know to, and yes, he's, yes, yes, today. yes, yes, yes. So today I just watched his, uh, his, his farewell to Donald Trump 
um, set to the tune of um, uh, from. Um, uh, um, we'll find it. No, 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 no. I've got to, it's just fabulous. It's um, it, it's the it's the great anthem from the musical that's based on La Boheme, which is the which is the first rock musical. Come on. Um, anyway. Watch not Randy Rainbow. Not um, a rock musical. Somebody's going to type Come it into on. the chat right now. Yes, thing yes, we're yes, yes. talking about. So we'll watch you, him. Watch Randy Rainbow's recent. You okay. will. It made me cry. It's very funny, and it's over. So okay. it's a celebration without any forgiveness, <laughs> and it makes you laugh. And it's uh, it's the joy of creativity. A very talented, cookie, wonderful, big-hearted human being who has made these videos throughout uh, for a long time, but especially <laughs> during the last four years. And it's cathartic, you know? That's what art is for, it's cathartic. That is what, well, Anita Diamond, we met because of your revitalized mikvah movement. Have you been to the Atlanta one? Yes, I have. Um, and tell us about it. It's, it's beautiful. It's not, if you've never been to a mikvah, uh, which is a ritual bath, it's a building that holds the ritual bath. The bath itself is called a mikvah and it's, it's used for religious purposes and, uh, and for emotional and physical healing, uh, not curing, but healing. And um, it's a, uh, it's an ancient ritual that has been opened up in, in our times to be more inclusive and expansive. And it's a beautiful building, and it's if you for a lot of people who have an idea of what a mikvah, never been to one, they may have a negative, dark, dank. I don't need to go to that kind of place, but I would suggest that if you have the opportunity to see this lovely place, um, you'll be inspired and uh, uplifted just by seeing it and seeing the effort and thought and intention, beautiful intention in this place. Well, here we are. And Anita, every now and again, I go, you know, COVID has obviously changed all of our lives and been incredibly, incredibly grueling. But occasionally I go, what happened today that wouldn't have happened? And I would not have met you. And I would have not had my entire community today, which I'm just delighted to have this time with you because you'd probably be somewhere in some other place and not accessible to us via Zoom. I do look forward to speaking to you in May though, when period is published and out there and available, because I think it's important, as you say, that we're exposed to this. And I will make sure that I write the list of all the books so that if you haven't read them all, you, you can. Thank you. And Anita Diamond, you, have certainly revitalized my day and just <laughs> an absolute pleasure as I end this conversation. And if people want to hear more from you or about you, where do they get information? Um, go to my website, anitadiamond.com. And I have a blog, which I will be writing more in um, about all sorts of things. I'm about to post something about my memories of the inauguration four years ago uh, and how that felt and how this one feels. Um, I'm a little exhausted, <laughs> more exhausted than triumphant this year, but very happy. And uh, So I just say to people, you know, just health, mainly health, right? Let's all absolutely. get through this. Yes. Many great conversations. And you are certainly somebody who has made the world a much more interesting and wonderful place. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's lovely to meet you. And I look forward to continuing our conversation in the future. Thanks, Anita. Bye. Bye-bye.